0: Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time. And we're up to Episode 27, The English Reformation, Part 4, Bloody Mary. The dead are here. And we're going to have Astraea joining us on the program. Came straight here from the astral plane via central Italy in the 17th century. And we're really privileged to have her with us today. Is the most interesting thing about Mary Tudor her nickname? In folklore, you would look into a mirror and say, Bloody Mary, three times, and she would appear.
1: To do what, though? To burn any Protestants that happened to be around?
0: On the question of history's P equals NP problem, she is a queen whose personal history had a major impact on her reign, what she did, what happened. But in the event, the impact of her reign was to make Protestantism more powerful, to make Catholics somewhat embarrassed about being Catholic, drive Catholicism underground, create anti-Spanish feeling, and above all, reinforce the power of Parliament over spiritual matters. So her biography supports both sides of the equation. She was the much-loved daughter of Henry and Catherine of Aragon. Remember, Catherine was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. Earlier in her adolescence, her father had started trying to divorce her mother and she had a dramatic fall in status. As a little girl, she was engaged to Europe's alpha male, Charles V, also her first cousin, then to Francis I, Valois, King of France, and then his younger brother, the Duc d'Orléans, and then Francis I again. It's nice to be wanted. It's also pretty weird the way these royals roll. As a preteen, she's banished from her father's side and not allowed to see her mother at all. She is demoted from princess to merely a lady. She plunges into depression, from which she suffers much of her life. She seems like a super-intelligent child prodigy with huge potential. But at 17, she's officially demoted and loses her ability to inherit the throne after years of uncertainty and distress.
1: That would be emotionally devastating at a time of life when young people are terribly vulnerable to changes in status and being cut off from love would make it even worse.
0: Eventually, Henry would marry Catherine Parr, who seemed like a genuinely good and kind woman, his sixth and final wife. She brought the royal family back together. Henry was reunited with Elizabeth and Mary. Henry got Parliament to put Mary and Elizabeth back into the line of succession after Edward, of course. Mary had to acknowledge the royal supremacy over the church and the separation from Rome in a written statement, but she never seemed able to forgive. So, Edward has his short reign. Cranmer gets the Book of Common Prayer adopted. Judicial murder for religion ends. Protestant education starts spreading to the north and west of England, where it's still pretty thin on the ground outside the port towns. As I mentioned, Edward overturns his father's order of succession. As king, he's got the right to do that. He appoints Lady Jane Grey to be queen after him. She's just seventeen. She doesn't want the job, had to be tricked into it, but she's a highly intelligent young woman. She loves Plato, and according to my crackpot theories about early worldview adoption, Plato at 17 is highly indicative of exceptional intelligence. Typically that love would last three or four years, but sadly Jane, as a poor pawn in a greater game, would not live long enough to move on to another intellectual interest. Historians tend to see Jane Grey as the legitimate queen and Mary coming to power as a coup. But really, this is splitting hairs. Jane was married to the son of the head of government, Dudley. People in London saw Jane as an attempt of politicians to illegitimately seize power. They remembered Henry's succession plan, and basically that's what felt legitimate. Plus, Mary's support came from conservative landed nobility who had all the military force. So basically, Mary succeeded Edward as her father had allowed for, and Jane Grey as a nine-day queen is just a historical curiosity. Religion may not have been a big factor in her early popular support. She quickly made a statement that she would not require any subject to follow her religion. And if you believe that, I have a Nigerian prince I'd like you to meet. Mary got a parliament together, and her ministers tried to influence its composition by getting older people, more likely to be Catholic, selected. She got her parents' marriage declared valid. It was at this time that she started calling herself Catholic, using that term for her party, her supporters. And it was the first time the word Protestant became common in England for the anti-papist side. Then there's something very curious about Mary's reign. I mean, there she is, determined to restore the Church of England to the Church of Rome, to restore the mass, to stop all that Bible reading, restore the shrines, relics, and everything associated with medieval Christianity. And also, she wanted to bind England to the Catholic world of her mother and Mary into the Habsburgs. And here is the curious thing. Despite getting her way in nearly all the details, she actually accomplished the exact opposite of her goals. And this isn't that unusual. In his masterwork, Modern Times, Paul Johnson demonstrates that during the 20th century, the unintended consequences of many political actions and policies were overwhelming. And there are a lot of ways to look at Mary. Bloody Mary. The sobriquet is very useful because her times saw so many Marys. Her father's sister was also Mary Tudor, so that's not good enough. There was Mary, Queen of Scots, who was sort of the heir of the Tudors. And her mother Mary, Mary Guise. Mary the First is the more respectful way to name Bloody Mary. We can see her through the tragic lens of a happy girl whose adolescence is one of crushed dreams. A frustrating young adulthood finally sees all her dreams realized in maturity. But then her dream marriage turns to ashes as her dream man sails away over the horizon after her yearn for pregnancy is false. The mental instability she's trying to hide is briefly revealed. We can see her as the witting, willing tool of Habsburg plans to dominate the world. We can see her as the restorer of the religious faith of her countrymen who lost their religion without their consent. We can see her as a murderous tyrant, more continental than English, who didn't care who she had to kill to get her way. These are all accurate. There are at least a hundred books looking at her from each of these perspectives
1: then how can you possibly choose which story to tell? Is there one true story, or are there many?
0: There can only be one true story. But real people are complicated and resist simplification. We can never have enough facts. I think she was a complex, highly intelligent monarch driven by the logic of monarchical power. I'm going to emphasize the monarchical power angle because it is most alien. The things that historians use to humanize her don't matter to history. Her supposed compassion to her sister Elizabeth is one. Her Lord Chancellor, Bishop Gardiner, bishops in high government posts, longtime foe of Cromwell and Cramner, has Elizabeth arrested and thrown into the tower. He sends an order for Elizabeth's execution to the master of the tower under his own signature. This story is supposed to be that the master bravely sent for clarification to the queen whether he should really execute Elizabeth Tudor. Daughter of Henry VIII, my gosh! Defying the Lord Chancellor, the most powerful man in England. And when Mary realizes what's going on, she saves her sister from the headsman's axe. Cool story, bro. But a scared and compliant Elizabeth was much better for Mary than a dead one could ever be because of the logic of royalty. If Elizabeth is dead, Mary, Queen of Scots, would be the heir presumptive, and that would give the Scots and the French. Good reason to work for Bloody Mary's overthrow. Elizabeth's life was on the line several times, and we can be pretty sure Philip II wanted to keep Elizabeth alive when he was in England. Again, to keep off French influence, which was the greatest of all reasons. The same cold logic applies throughout Mary's life as long as she lacks an heir. Mary's compassion towards Jane Grey lasted exactly as long as her father stayed loyal. Then it was a date with the chopping block. Then there was all the burning. Only about 300, but that was about the maximum the authorities and the legal system could handle once people started applauding and rooting for the victims. Uh, More on that next episode. And then there was her restoring the faith her people preferred. But that process was subject to Habsburg dynastic aims first and foremost. Doing something for the people came second. Reginald Poole, a very, very fascinating man, first cousin of Henry VIII, cardinal, almost a pope, the candidate of Charles V, Habsburg lord over most of Europe, and a, lot of the, and a lot of the rest of the world, too. Reginald Poole was the man to come to England and drive the day-to-day work of the restoration of the faith. But starting that work was secondary to Philip II, getting credit for it. Philip, who was going to be king of Spain, Naples, the Low Countries, and plenty more, was to get the status boost for returning an entire kingdom to the faith. And if that means the process had to be delayed, it would be delayed. It was delayed. And there was her marriage. Son of her first cousin, Philip of Spain. Philip wanted to marry her to deny England to France and help secure the Low Countries, which, if we remember from episodes 13 and 14, were the richest provinces in the European part of the empire.
1: That makes sense for Philip and the Habsburgs, but I wonder how does it make sense for England? Why would England want to be subsumed into the empire? That would mean Habsburg wars and just being an afterthought instead of independent.
0: That's right. This is totally wrong for England. But what is best for kingdom and country are not even valid questions apart from what is best for the monarch and the monarch's family. Not even a valid issue. This comes up a lot in history. And from my take, Mary sees herself as a Habsburg. She sees herself as part of her mother's family. Makes sense from the Habsburgs' point of view. But why else might Mary want to marry Philip? There are many possible reasons. The soon-to-be-most-powerful man in the world could be seen as a desirable match for monkey reasons. and Marrying an Englishman would be problematic for domestic political reasons. Just uh, think about that for a minute. No ruling queen of England has ever been able to get around this. But the granddaughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, who strongly identifies with her mother's family, is serving that family, her family, her royal family, taking the Habsburg point of view as her own, above all by uniting her kingdom with it. Am I exaggerating this royal selfishness? We see this over and over again. I can cite you dozens of examples or sum them up with Louis XIV's pithy observation Après moi, le deluge. When they finally get down to restoring the Catholic faith, after the Habsburg goals are first achieved, the plan is to quite deliberately kill a few people. A short, sharp shock was the phrase to make everyone else conform. Now, this isn't the kind of Habsburg or or Valois mass killing or expulsion of peoples. The Habsburgs and Valois were not monsters, they didn't kill first, ask questions later. They knew there were a lot of inconveniences, risks, and downsides to getting murdery. Both houses used mass murder only when it seemed the best thing to do. So mass murder would be further down on the list of things to try. And I don't even have to be so unfair to Bloody Mary to assert that mass murder was a possibility, one of the things in her toolbox. Here's the criticism. In a country with pretty reasonable religious peace, comparatively speaking, with laws against killing anyone for heresy. Mary got Parliament to repeal the laws against killing for heresy. She and her advisors deliberately set out to kill a few score Protestants just for being Protestants, to convince everyone else to shut up and start conforming to Catholicism, at least outwardly. This isn't uniquely terrible in the history of the world. Even today, most Marxists will openly say they've got to kill a bunch of people before they can really get on with their program. And they'll say it openly to your face, in private conversation. It's pretty common. Even when beginning any enterprise intended for good with deliberate murder is a pretty iffy proposition. That's Conrad's analysis, among
1: others. But that's just horrible. You almost sound like a monster yourself. You're implying that the worst thing about these murders is that they got in the way of achieving their goals.
0: Oft evil will shall evil mar. That's what I'm saying. I don't want to pretend to squeamishness here. Evil is a thing we should understand. I mean, maybe Nietzsche was right to say that we shouldn't look at it too long, which sounds like his reaction to Stirner. More narrowly, the podcast has pointed out how infuriating Protestants could be towards Catholics, how superior they behaved. Now, they were much more enlightened and progressive. About this time, Calvinist ideals were first spreading, and they were, if anything, more condescending and hateful towards Catholics, more progressive. But still, any special claim to compassion has to be surrendered when you plan to begin by murder, no matter how self-righteous it makes you feel. Your feelings give you no special moral claim. It's an easy thing to forget, so I'll repeat it. Your feelings give you no special moral claim. And I suppose I have to address the property question here. Uh, This was the trap that Cromwell set to protect the cause of the Reformation against a future monarch like Mary that might try to restore papal supremacy. Uh, Poole and Mary and Catholics generally said that people who held church property were in a state of sin and should return the property to the Pope. Well, most of the leading families had some of that church land and a pretty fair share in the commons did too. Could they be expected to give up so much wealth? No, what kind of world do you think this is? So Pole came up with a formula. no pool it's spelled like Pole, which is weird. The Pope sent over a ruling saying that the English could keep their church lands. the state of sin. well, that was still a problem, but the Pope says, "Okay, keep the land." Well, if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll see that the problem with the Pope saying it was okay, keep your land because the Pope says so means your ownership is insecure because some future pope and popes turned over pretty fast in those days, could always decide to take the land back. This would not work. Raoul, I hope you're listening. This is one of my answers to your question. Those Catholic nobles that put Mary on the throne had their eyes opened. And even Philip said that Poole and Mary were taking too hard a line. Philip is following the logic of monarchical power better. The details of today's issues, whatever they are, do not matter, only keeping power. Any other issue can be resolved later. Eventually, they had to swallow a solution where Parliament passed an act forbidding the return of the land to the church. This meant that the landowners could keep their land and were not in a state of sin because they had no options. But now you can see that this whole idea of papal supremacy in England was quite threatening to landowners. The logic of separation from Rome was brought home to many. And Mary's own behavior here cost her a bit in the eyes of the nobility. Last episode, we talked about Cromwell closing the shrines, mocking the gullibility of people going to shrines and giving their wealth to shrines. Henry took a jewel from a shrine, a gift from Louis VII of France. He was well known for wearing this huge ruby as a thumb ring. Mary took that stone and had it made into a collar that she wore frequently in public so that everyone could see that she, too, benefited from the Reformation. Mary claimed that she would return crown lands to the church. In the event, she never did. And was it even possible? Back in episode 15, I pointed out that Elizabeth's revenue fell 40% in real terms, and she made it up with piracy and selling crown lands, much of which were former church lands. Elizabeth was known as a penny pincher, but things would have been bad if she wasn't one. And if Mary had given the church lands back, wow, the financial crises of Charles I would have started a lot earlier, and we would have had a different history. Mary married Philip, son of Charles V. Later, Philip II, King of Spain. This would tie her pro-Catholic cause with the cause of Spain in the minds of the English. This was just one effect of her marriage. Another was to stimulate anti-Spanish feeling, and, as in the case of the Dutch cause, anti-Spanish feeling to allied into anti-Catholic feeling. Much like in the Dutch case, the anti-Spanish feeling became anti-Catholic through the same process described in the Dutch or special episodes and a majority Catholic population started to switch. It's so interesting that the first converts of Protestantism came among the most religious people, especially in the clergy. And, and of course, people slowly started to be convinced by an intellectual process for some, and an emotional one where people who loved the idea of a theology of the cross and a theology of the weak. But, come on, people can be convinced of new things by intellectual appeal only slowly, and it's not really likely to be a deep conviction. The emotional path can be deeper, but it's only a narrow part of the population is emotionally driven down that path. The rest of us aren't really open to it. But hatred, and despite, and its milder cousin, scorn, the other side of the coin from love can move a lot of people fast. People get the message that those people over there, they're against us. They are our enemies. They want to attack us, kill us, convert us. And sure as anything, we start wanting to become the anti-them, monkey stuff. Repeated in England a bit after, and simultaneous with the process we already described in the United Provinces. Still happens, it's happening now. I often find it difficult to respect it when I see people doing it, but five episodes ago I confessed to despite, which is even worse. So, it wasn't just anti Spanish and anti Catholic feelings that were stimulated, and man, were they stimulated. The Counter Reformation in the Netherlands was no secret. Then de las Casas became well known, his work made the Spanish seem monstrous because what they were doing in the Americas was monstrous. So, proto-nationalistic feelings already in existence grew as well, though these can't be totally separated from anti-Spanish feelings. Eh, People will say English nationalism was defined by being anti-French, others by being anti-Spanish. I'm not sure. There's a lot going on. Mary married Philip II of Spain. If she produced a child, that child would be monarch of both countries, and England would be decidedly a junior partner. The Habsburgs were almost constantly at war, and and England would be pulled along. England would be embroiled in continental politics. And what interest of England's would this serve? What interest of the English people?
1: We already know the answer to this. Your question is just wrong.
0: That's it in one. The answer is that the question is wrong. The interests of the English people are not relevant. Only the interests of the crown, the monarch, is relevant. A number of people noticed this little problem. Mary evidently didn't care for the people above all. That's a problem people noticed and were anxious about. But it's true for any monarch, isn't it? Potentially, at least. This monarchy thing has some drawbacks, doesn't it? The penny is dropping. Yeast is being added to the dough.
1: An electric charge is building.
0: When historical records finally allow us to look, when lower-class people are speaking for themselves, they're going to have a lot of weird, anti-monarchial, anti-noble beliefs. There's some evidence that the seeds were planted right here in Mary's reign. We certainly see fully-formed trees 50 years into the future. I won't lean too hard on this. The evidence isn't thick enough. However, the weaknesses of personal power, intellectually, socially, morally, practically, which are not present in representative institutions, eventually become obvious and clear. Another thing Mary never intended. I I see an opportunity to clarify two difficult concepts at one time with the same example. The notion of the problem with the medieval, cleric, and noble-dominated society and the problem of understanding conflicts over the Eucharist. You know, the mix of reality and symbol of Christ's presence at the Mass. Stop that! I know you're tempted to tune out when I mention the Eucharist. Death is the missing ingredient and your personal inadequacy. You are not good enough. You are a terrible person. How can anyone truly love you? Death. 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 Yours. Your parents. Grandparents. Death. It's coming for you. All right. I hope your attention returned. Today, Catholics and Protestants alike don't celebrate the Mass in the same spirit of the medieval church. And you who have no religion think this isn't relevant to you. It is. You're wrong. I'll explain next episode. The medieval church had a much bigger audience than even the most packed church today. It included the dead. All of them. The Mass broke down the barrier between life and death in a very particular concrete sense. Alongside the living in a medieval church are the bumping crowds of the dead. They might be invisible, sure, but still very present in the mass all around you. Cast your mind back to episode 22 with Jolt and Joe and purgatory. The mass had the power to speed the dead through purgatory. And remember the demand for spice-powering history episode? Well, quoting McCullough again, A gigantic consumer demand of the dead fueled the services of the church. A gigantic consumer demand of the dead fueled the services of the church. Now do you see it? This was what the Protestants wanted to stop.
1: That's amazing. The mess was magical, but real.
0: They wanted to save everyone from the great con game the church was playing. They wanted to banish the dead and banish the ideas that summoned them to join with us. To do this, they had to bring the clergy down in status. Make the clergy more like us. Married, for one thing. Do you get it now? They were basically doing sorcery. Magic. Maybe white magic. People needed to wake up and realize this institution was standing on our throats in the name of the dead. The stakes were high. Are we here to serve the living or the dead? Breaking this superstition was an urgent driver of Protestants. From our perspective, the Protestants were crazy to spend so much energy attacking what we see as a quaint, comforting, probably psychologically healthy custom. Among Protestants, neat taxonomies were drawn up about the amounts of symbolism in the Mass, and modern Catholics are right there with them pretty much. Back then, there was zero symbolism. Zero. It was happening around you. In the Mass, we could move the dead along. Mary's whole counterproductive thing might have just been driven by her desire to help her mother, that was possibly the only real love in her life. She prayed to help her mother. The Protestants called it superstition and evil. Her mother needed her. I'll help you, Mom. This is part of the devotion to family, past, present, and future. It's not Christian. It's not even Western. It's not even European. The devotion to family, past, present, and future is a dominant feature in many human societies. Stop and think about how powerful that impulse is for humans. Go ahead. I'll wait. Christianity partially tamed it with exogamous marriages. That was the point. But not so much for royals. They were a breed apart, weren't they? Forget that a minute. For us, the devotion to family is attenuated compared to the ancients or to many cultures today. But it is not beyond imagining, so imagine it a bit. Your life is just there to serve your family. It is not yours at all. And we all actually feel this today in certain moments, despite the millennia of Christ's influence. The Protestants were taking the next logical step. Banish the dead. Be with the living. Uphold the future. The future is where it's at. The circle of concern is greater, broader, and this seems nobler. It seems a higher ideal. Love for all. If everyone can trust me, perhaps everyone will be trustworthy. Love for all after the dead are banished is a category of concern. But Burke and Conrad and Stirner and Nietzsche and the other, that other guy warn us that there are limits to this approach. Our monkey brains can't hold the ideal of universal love. A monster will arrive, tell us a story, we will fall for it. And for the cause of love, which the monster will call by a different name, we will grimly persecute each other today and into the future forever.
1: Sounds like the pessimism from episode 20 is back again.
0: Maybe not. We have some tools at hand with which to resist. Powerful tools, it must be said. Actual love and affection for family and friends to start with. So the Protestants took us all forward to a better world and created some horrible grave risks that did lead to horrors, horrors in the past and probably some in our future too. Paradox and contradiction again. For now, we see royal families resisted the influence of Christ more successfully than the lower classes. Noble families tried to emulate royals. Gentry tried to emulate nobility. A long struggle against love. It ain't over. Next episode, we'll look at some other ways the Protestants tried to move away from the medieval world. Catholics basically became those Protestants, and Protestants kept moving, however. They basically became us in the secularized West, for good or ill. And we'll get to Raoul's question of religious issues soon, but here is a hint. The question is wrong. And then we'll be ready to finish up Mary and Elizabeth to get into the Stuarts and back to Cromwell and the real birth of science. Oh, and just to anticipate an objection that I made up all that stuff about the dead being a major constituency in the medieval church, it has a long bibliography you can look up for yourself, and this is not one of my pet theories. You can start with uh, Eamon Duffy, stripping of the altars, and of course there is McCullough, who is the great one of early modern history. I am not fit to lick the ground under your boots, sir. The last chapter of his Cranmer biography covers this well. More next week after conversations with Cammie.
2: Okay, we'll figure it out. (laughs) Hey
0: Cammie, you've had the chance to listen to Astrea and episode 27. What'd you think?
2: The influence of the dead and, and Bloody Mary, pool, so much going on. Oh, the story that Mary and Elizabeth seem to have such a complex relationship, and it seems like it maybe uh, was influenced by the many different faces or moods of Mary.
0: Well, you got to remember that first, Mary is kicked out of the family because Henry marries Elizabeth's mother, then Elizabeth's born. How could she see Elizabeth as anything but? Uh, pustule in her life.
2: They must have had a quite a rivalry that pair.
0: Well, I mean, there's a big difference in age and, and I think they hardly ever saw each other until uh, Catherine Parr married Henry, Henry's last wife.
2: And brought the family together again.
0: Yeah, so they were physically together.
2: I feel like I have a lot of respect for her.
0: Yeah, per- I think pretty much everybody does.
2: Plus, she had to have been pretty courageous just to take the take yes. the job. I mean, they're, they're I'm they're sorry, good. but you know, I, I don't think I would have married the man with his uh history of beheading wives and all, yeah. but she sounds like she was strong and had quite a bit of influence over him. She is a person in history. I think I would like to hear more about, actually.
0: Yeah, she shows up as a character in a lot of historical fiction, too. And it's pretty much impossible to you know, not portray her as noble and well-intentioned.
2: What is her religious?
0: Yeah, she was definitely on the Protestant side. And, you know, once I mentioned all the historical fiction that she's in, I'm thinking of that probably more than history. But certainly she gets portrayed as, as someone who wants to help the Protestant cause, a helper, an ally of Cranmer.
2: Your discussion of death and how there were more dead people in worship than the living that they surrounded you in worship.
0: The dead were everywhere.
2: It conjures all kinds of different visions of what it must have been like to worship.
0: Well, that's the, a really difficult thing for us to keep in mind. You know, when I keep talking about how hard it is to keep the 16th century context in mind, this is one of the things I mean the church the medieval church that you know we're trying to get rid of here is basically practicing magic they're doing these ritualistic acts that are supposed to be influencing processes of life after death
2: are they still selling time from purgatory and and things like that at this point in time
0: well we were sort of joking about that but
2: say your prayer and put an extra coin in the coffers and and your, per- your grandmother or mother or whatever can move on faster?
0: Yeah, that particular con game was based on the notion that uh, the church had influence on life after death. And the Mass, in particular, said for the soul of somebody in purgatory had the power to reduce their sins.
2: So I can see why Mary would be so drawn to that, given the death of her mother.
0: Yeah, anybody would be drawn to it, right? We all have somebody that we would like to help that uh, there are so many cultures, uh, it doesn't seem right to call any particular one out, but there are so many cultures that uh, venerate the spirits of the ancestors. I'm tempted to think of it as some kind of core human belief that we, you know, is part of our heritage from our creation or processes of evolution, however you want to think about it, that everyone has got it.
2: Well, many families, it's a way of honoring and remembering their their heritage i mean even now sure there's that. we talk about our our family and those who've come before us and we have special mementos and and things like that that connect you to the past and there's sure, a real there's also a literal... desire to be connected to that person still
0: yeah and there's also a literal belief that that person is still hanging around watching and you know in some sense participating not maybe putting in an active hand but Maybe causing bad luck or good luck, or even if the only influence is by the fact that we feel like we're being observed and, and want to live up to that person and seem worthy in their eyes.
2: I think I like the notions and picture of religions moving forward more in serving the living rather than the dead
0: yeah me too i think that was it's possible that that was absolutely integral to the scientific revolution that's to come and it might be key for example to helping the people who are on the spectrum who probably drove all of our uh, scientific advances
2: well i look forward to hearing more about that did you get anything there do we need to go more
0: And thank you to Astrea for coming on the program. And I'm sure that Bruni thanks you also. And thank you for the kind words and comments. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening.